You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We have team coverage of the policing decision in Surrey coming up, but first, breaking news involving an Amber Alert. Surrey RCMP need everyone to be on the lookout for two children last seen in Kelowna, and we'll get right to Kamal Kuramali, who joins us live in the studio with the details. Kamal? Chris, an Amber Alert has been issued by Surrey RCMP for two children. Eight-year-old Aurora Bolton and 10-year-old Joshua Bolton were reported missing by their father on Tuesday after failing to return home from a vacation in the Kelowna area with their mother. 45-year-old Verity Bolton is believed to be driving a blue 2012 Dodge D250 with the BC license plate SJ2708. They were last spotted at Crafty's Kitchen and Bar in Kelowna. Aurora was wearing a blue dress with flowers on it. Meanwhile, Joshua was wearing shorts and a t-shirt. Police provided a timeline of the events that stems back to late June. They were last seen on June 30th. They were with their mother on a planned holiday or planned vacation, and they were due to be returned on July 17th. Um, during the course of um, that time that they have been away, they have been out of contact. The children were not returned to their uh, primary guardian, and based on additional investigative steps that have been taken, we do believe that the children are at risk. And if you see Joshua, Aurora, or their mother, Verity, you are asked not to approach them, but call RCMP instead. Back over to you. Hoping for good news in mm -hmm. that case. Thanks very much, Kamal. Well, there's finally a decision in the Surrey policing saga. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth has directed the city to continue its transition to a municipal police force. This appears to be the final chapter in the story that had new mayor Brenda Locke in a battle with the province to keep the RCMP in Surrey instead. Richard Zussman joins us with more. And Richard Farnworth, though, says the transition to SPS is the safest and best option. The debate started more than five years ago, Chris, in Surrey. It endured in Surrey. It frustrated people in Surrey, but it's ended here in Victoria. Mike Farnworth finally making that decision, something that people have been waiting a long time for. BC's top cop laying down the law. Uh, this decision is the, the final decision. Uh, the direction is clear. It's done under the authority of the uh, of the Police Act. The end of years of debate over the future of policing in Surrey. A majority of Surrey Council, including Mayor Brenda Locke, insisting the community be policed by the RCMP, but now the province handcuffing them to the Surrey Police Service. The city's plan to go back is just not safe. It pulls it puts people at risk. And here's why. There are currently 1,500 hard and soft staffing vacancies within the RCMP BC-wide. With 638 cadets graduating as Mounties across Canada every year, 842 are retiring or leaving. On top of that, the Surrey Police Service already employs 400 officers and support staff and is answering 50% of all the frontline policing calls. The transition expected to take two to three more years to give time to fully staff up. What we have to ensure is, is that things take place in an orderly fashion. The outspoken mayor, silent Wednesday, 
Brenda Locke turning down all interview requests, instead sending a statement. In part it reads, the province has never produced a plan on how it intends to maintain public safety through the transition, nor have they ever directly met with us to outline their concerns with our plan. The mayor doesn't agree with my decision. But that won't stop me from doing the right thing. The province will provide the city of Surrey $150 million to cover transition costs. The mayor claims the tax burden will be much greater than that, as her former political foe celebrates the province's decision. The Surrey Police Service truly is a community police service. It, it's, it's going to be an example that is used around the world. Locke says she'll now meet with her council and staff to figure out their next options. Legal options are potentially on the table here. She also wants to have a meeting with Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. When I asked Farnworth about that earlier today, he says he's happy to meet at any point. We'll see what comes of those conversations. All right, thanks for that, Richard Zussman in Victoria. Let's bring in Keith Baldry now with more on the story. And Keith, Mike Farnworth also talked today about bringing in legislation to ensure something like this back and forth doesn't happen again. So what could legislation look like? Yeah, I think everyone agrees no one wants to go through this protracted fight for a number of years again. So the Police Act will be amended this fall. And some of the things Mike Farmer is looking at is earlier involvement of the minister. If a municipality wants to move on to a different type of policing, the minister has to get involved earlier than what is currently the case. And also the flow of information has to be much better. These non-disclosure agreements really held up the process for a number of months. Here's the minister. My intention is to bring legislation in the fall that uh, will ensure that does not happen. Um, we will obviously engage in consultation uh, with local government, with UBCM. We also have been making changes, uh, proposing changes uh, for the fall in terms of the Police Act um, and uh, around governance and, and, and such. Right? But I, I think one of the things, uh, two areas, one may be that uh, um, uh, the, the uh, act or changes could be in terms of um, uh, a minister being able to get involved earlier uh, in a, a decision such as this. Uh, but also uh, to be able to request and ask for uh, any and all documents and not have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Now, another change he's looking at is the preventing municipalities from changing horses in midstream. Once you set on a course to change policing, you can't reverse it, which is what Surrey did, which really gummed the, the works here, I think, for a long time. So those amendments introduced in the fall, at the very least, Mike Farnworth told me he doesn't want to see any other future Solicitor General go through what he went through for a number of years. This is the worst political problem he's had to deal with since he became a politician. And it's gone on for quite some time. All right, thanks for that. Keith Baldry reporting in Victoria. And of course, we've seen a range of reaction to today's decision with many Surrey residents. Just the end is in sight. Taxpayers have been footing the bill for a couple of police forces now for months. And as Kristen Robinson reports, the man who set this whole thing in motion might be the most relieved of all. It's the most exciting day that I've been in in a long time. Doug McCallum, elated. The former Surrey mayor promised to get rid of the RCMP and transition to a local police force. This isn't about Brenda Locke, this transition. This is about the Surrey Police Force. Before she was elected mayor, Locke was part of McCallum's Safe Surrey Coalition, which brought in the Surrey Police Service. But the two had a parting of the ways and she ran against him on a platform of retaining the RCMP. Now it's time to move ahead. Surrey's new top cop believes his force will be able to maximize public safety. You have these long-term police officers 
in a predictable staffing plan that stays and understands and gets to know the community. I think that's so important in this day and age of public trust and policing. There's benefits to having a localized police, especially if the police serving the community are from the community. It makes it easier to hold them accountable. Surrey taxpayers have been footing a roughly $8 million monthly bill to support two police services. Generally concerned, yeah. If taxes are going to rise, so that, that's it. We can't do anything. It's uh, increasing every day. Councillor Linda Annis, who called for a referendum on Surrey policing, hopes the province will step up if Surrey police transition costs balloon. What does that mean for taxpayers? Well, Minister Farnworth has said to the city of Surrey that he will give us $150 million spread out over five years, so it's $30 million per year. He anticipates that that will cover the cost differential. The Surrey Board of Trade fears the 12.5% property tax hikes businesses are seeing will only worsen. I am quite concerned. We anticipate that as this new municipal police force is coming into force, that that uh, increase will continue to rise. The National Police Federation, which represents RCMP members, says with no plan in place, the decision is disappointing but not surprising. This has always been about politics over facts and evidence. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Well, the labor dispute at BC Ports has been a roller coaster for businesses and the economy. The International Longshore and Warehouse Union issued a second strike notice for Saturday morning, but some breaking news late this afternoon. They suddenly removed it. Our Rumina Dea joins us live with the details on this. Rumina. Sophie, the past 24 hours has just been crazy and unpredictable. About an hour ago, the union president dropped a press release, a one-line press release, which said that the strike notice for Saturday has now been removed. No details attached. While this is obviously a huge relief for key stakeholders, including small businesses, they're a little bit nervous because there's still no deal. It's going to be probably pretty hard get parts yeah available auto parts running out for this small business the owner of neighborhood automotive Katie Stockford concerned how she's going to get her customers back on the road if the port strike drags on when we're waiting on stuff to get here and it's sitting at the ports like there's nothing we can do our hands are kind of tied Stockford's orders sweating in the sun at the port. A small chunk of an estimated $10 billion worth of traded goods which have been impacted. This strike is an example of Justin Trudeau's total incompetence. And we're calling on him to deliver a plan to end this strike within the next 24 hours. Stakeholders calling on the Trudeau government to recall Parliament and put an end to the chaos, which started Canada when over 7,000 BC port workers walked off the job. A tentative four-year deal reached July 13th, obliterated on Tuesday. The BC Maritime Employers Association and International Longshore and Warehouse Union at a standstill. My patience has run out. Uh, so uh, the option of what options are before us, those are the discussions that we're having today. We are again calling on the federal government to do everything in its power to ensure that this comes to a resolution. Those valve cover gases definitely leaking on top because I've seen it. Yeah. Back at the local auto shop, Stockford wonders how long she can go on given the uncertainty. 
The federal government should step up and, and try to make a resolution here as quickly as they can. Uh, Sophie, more breaking news again here. I'm just hearing right now that the federal labor minister has also released a statement saying that union members are expected to ratify a new four-year deal. Again, it hasn't happened yet. We'll update you as soon as details come in. Back to you. It's a fast-moving situation. All right, thanks for that, Ramina. And an end might be in sight for a strike that's crippled transit service in the Fraser Valley. First Transit, the company that operates BC Transit Service in the Valley, says it accepts the terms of a mediator's settlement. Workers have been off the job since March, cancelling all but essential handy dart service. QP is striking for pay and pension improvements. The union has already recommended members accept the proposal. At least seven homes have been destroyed and dozens more evacuated as the BC Wildfire Service ramps up the response to the St. Mary's River wildfire just outside of Cranbrook. A fire started Monday and grew rapidly. And as Troy Charles shows us, some unscrupulous people are making it worse using the tragedy to launch fake fundraising campaigns. I think about it, then I cry, and I think about it, then I cry. A harsh reality for Dolly and her husband Pete, owners of one of seven houses lost to the St. Mary's River fire. Escaping with their dog and little else, the couple's immediate family also affected. My wife's son, they lost their house. They have eight kids, nine kids, and they lost everything. And they were grandkids. And I'm just glad they made it out, because we were following them too. As the fire rapidly grew Monday afternoon, 52 homes were evacuated in the Ockham community 10 kilometers northeast of Cranbrook. Downed power lines believed to be the cause of the out of wildfire and strong winds have caused it to grow. It's now mapped at 850 hectares. BC Wildfire says crews are working hard to gain containment and protect structures. Fire behavior has, has died down, uh, you know, around the residences. There is still spot fires, there's still smoldering. We were able to save homes and we were able to get the community out really safely. And that's, that was our main goal. If weather conditions improve, there are plans for small ignitions on the fire's west, north and east flanks. Sadly, Occam Nisukum or Chief Joe Pierre needing to warn those who want to donate to the community. Bogus GoFundMe pages that are using our community name. Um, our community is not using GoFundMe in any way. For the roughly 100 evacuees, emergency support services have been extended through next Thursday, but there's no timeline when they'll be able to return home. It did take a number of our houses. It's, it's hurt a lot of us emotionally, and we don't know what, what, what's still yet to come. You know, because I'm a pretty strong person at heart, but my heart was broken today. But it will heal. Troy Charles, Global News. Two separate wildfires kept crews busy on Vancouver Island today. Both fires along Highway 19A south of Kilometer, or south of Courtney, rather, about a kilometer apart. The first fire stretched into the forest and thick underbrush. Fire Chief Ian Ham says crews were called at about 2:30 and faced tough conditions. The train's pretty steep. Uh, it's loose. Um, 
Obviously there's no hydrants down here for us to use, so we've been shuttling water into the tanks. Other than that, it was, uh, I think it went pretty well. The cause of the fires is still under investigation, but they're believed to be suspicious and not caused by lightning. New developments tonight in the Dream Home disaster. An entire neighborhood with water views abandoned due to sinkholes. And now another violation. Okay, so it's almost too much to take. Uh, how the struggle of Sea Watch owners just gets worse. Next on the News Hour. A sneaky thief breaks into the boardroom and runs. Why the losses are really adding up for the iconic local retailer later. Plus. Well, just imagine a relatively short, swarthy man in a pirate suit. The mayor who left his mark on Nanaimo even decades after his death, coming up later on the news hour. Right now, though, there's more torment for residents of the Sea Watch development in Seashelt, forced out of their homes four years ago because of sinkholes in the neighborhood. They are still responsible for their properties. Now, as Aaron MacArthur reports, they say looters are ransacking those homes and they're concerned police aren't able or aren't willing to do anything. A burst pipe, water pouring on the floor. It probably lasts a little while, a little few hours because there's not New that destruction water here, only spotted we'll Wednesday. Another example of the damage done in the Sea-Watch neighborhood. Homes are being systematically dismantled, stripped of their valuable materials, while others are just being trashed. I've not been this far in. For four and a half years, the homes in this neighborhood have sat empty. The residents forced out by a local state of emergency after several large sinkholes opened up. The homes were built in an area with unstable ground. The state of emergency was eventually lifted. Every day we walk in here, doors are open, we close them. Residents can enter the fenced off areas, but they can't go home. Okay, so this is one of the worst homes. Ed Pednout um, comes every couple of days to document and report the damage vandals are doing to his and his neighbors' homes. It's gotten worse, absolutely, because I believe they know that they can walk into here with impunity at nighttime. Nobody's going to stop them. Um, so they have a free-for-all. What's particularly galling to the homeowners here is the utter lack of action from the district of Seashelt. The risk of sinkholes means district staff won't enter the neighborhood to fix the roads. The RCMP won't respond to calls for vandalism or theft. Even the fire department won't respond to anything other than a medical emergency that involves life and death. It's ridiculous that we can't have law enforcement patrol at nighttime or walk through here a couple of times a week even just to keep these people out. The district won't talk about the homeowners' concerns because many of the issues are still before the courts. Homeowners have lost nearly every court challenge they have filed at every level, but they continue to fight for some sort of compensation, afraid if they don't, they will lose everything they have. Aaron MacArthur, Global News, Seashelt. The president of New Chanoth Tribal Council, Judith Sayers, is launching a lawsuit two years after she was one of five people on board a float plane that crashed during takeoff into Finos Harbor. Judith Sayers is calling for safety standards to be improved and claiming she's never been compensated for her injuries or losses, which included her hearing aids. Catherine Urquhart has more. 
Nearly two years ago, Judith Sayers nearly died in a plane crash off Tofino. The president of the new Chalnath Tribal Council recalls the terrifying moments. I lifted my head out once, but it got too much water and I just couldn't do it anymore. So I was um, just about out of air. I said, okay, well, I guess this is it. I just, you know, I just can't breathe anymore. It was July 26th. 2021, when Sayers and her son boarded the Atlio Air seaplane in Tofino, bound for Heshquiet Hot Springs to view a new run-of-river project. But at takeoff, the plane lost control and crashed upside down in shallow water. Sayers was rescued by her son. I managed to get my head out of the water, and then he undid the seatbelt. So I fell down and then had to make my way out of the plane through the side window. An investigation by the Transportation Safety Board determined the aircraft's rate of acceleration was slowed by a boat wake during takeoff. It also noted how passenger weights can be underestimated. Sayers recently filed a lawsuit. Court documents allege the plane crash was caused solely by the negligence of the defendants by failing to provide adequate training to defendant pilot and defendant flight follower. Also, it alleges failing to make modifications to the aircraft to facilitate egress, and by failing to install quick-release doors, push-out windows, and high-visibility door handles. Sayers says she hasn't been on a plane since and is still recovering from various injuries, including to her back and shoulders. She's hoping the suit will prompt safety improvements. The Tofino Harbor needs to become safe, a safe place, because there was a, another accident four months later involving a float plane. Atlio Air has not filed a statement of defense and did not respond to requests for comment. The allegations have not been proven in court. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Coming up, a surprising development in a high-profile Nanaimo shooting. I'm worried about what um, message that this decision sends. Why the suspect won't be facing a criminal charge after all. Plus, the celebration is over at BC Ferries, one of its biggest vessels pulled from service again. Good evening and some good news here in Delta. Final clearing stages of a stall here eastbound on Nordell Way, just near the pedestrian overpass. Today's Lotto 649 gold ball jackpot is $28 million, plus a classic $5 million jackpot, two jackpots on every draw. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above the stall on Nordell Way in Delta. BC Ferries is warning of more congestion on the busy Tawasin Swartz Bay route after pulling the coastal celebration from service yet again. The vessel needs more repairs and they need to be done in dry dock. So the, the ship is not expected to re-enter service until late next week. That means eight fewer sailings each day. A late June refit of the coastal celebration took longer than expected, which caused major disruptions over the Canada Day long weekend. Since then, the boat has been in and out of service several times. Divers have now determined this latest issue is a hydraulic oil leak due to a bad seal. Well, here's a decision that's sure to be controversial. The only man charged in a high-profile shooting at an Nanaimo homeless camp has had the charge against him stayed. As Kylie Stanton reports, in a rare move, the B.C. Prosecution Service made public the reasons for the decision including the conclusion the alleged shooter was acting in self-defense. 
This was the moment that started a movement in the city of Nanaimo. Surveillance capturing someone with a long gun running through a parking lot. Evidence connected to the shooting of local business owner Clint Smith who was shot in the stomach while trying to retrieve property believed to be stolen from his auto shop. The community was outraged. Enough is enough! None of you guys after I got shot made Smith himself directing his anger at politicians, calling for action. Do something about it. But after months of investigation, the BC Prosecution Service says one count of pointing a firearm against Craig Edward Truckle has now been stayed. That will upset a great deal of people. However, we have to live under a system of laws. And the law is both a sword and a shield. According to the BCPS, the statements provided by the campers as well as bystanders indicate that the complainant and his group were the aggressors and the camp occupants acted to defend themselves. There's a fear that our judicial system and is not able to uh, protect the public. Um, and I think that's what this decision um, seems to convey. But now we're learning more about what investigators determined. Smith and the group entered the encampment armed with weapons, including sticks and metal batons, and some were wearing protective gear. In the statement, it says some of the new evidence cast significant doubt on the evidence of the complainant and other witnesses. As the investigation continued, the complainant and his group stopped cooperating with police. Global News reached out to Smith for a response, but he declined to comment. It's pretty disappointing to see it written and framed in a way that basically is victim blaming. Um, you know, Clint is the victim in this situation. But with the case now closed, officials are calling this a teachable moment. Please, please, please do not engage in something even remotely resembling vigilante activity. There are no winners in this story. Kylie Stanton, Global News. A Kelowna mother is speaking out tonight about a terrible accident that left her son in hospital undergoing reconstructive surgery. The blood was pouring out of his face and gurgling. His eyes were rolling back in his head, and I thought he was dying. On July 3rd, Yvonne Hildebrand and her 31-year-old son, Michael, were taking selfies and reading books in Kelowna's Kinsman Park when a large willow tree cracked and crashed down onto them. She was injured, but Michael got the worst of it, suffering broken ribs, a dislocated hip, and serious injuries to his face. And I see him over where my towel is still, and his head is against the tree, and he's moaning. And all I could cry out was, Michael, Michael, Michael. The doctor basically said to Michael that he had saved his own life. Um, Michael's medical knowledge um, of his time being a respiratory therapist and being a perfusionist helped him save his own life. He was able to spit out the blood and time his inhalation according to when he had spit out, so he didn't choke himself to death. Hildebrandt says she still doesn't know the identities of the two people who rushed to help, other than the fact they identified themselves as a nurse and a medic. Michael Hildebrandt is still in hospital waiting for his third facial reconstructive surgery. Wish him well in recovery. All right, coming up, a BC doctor going where most won't in Ukraine. These people are thirsty, hungry for, for any training they can get her inspiring story and how you can help her help others on the front lines. Plus, thieves hit a Vancouver snowboard shop again. The surveillance video and 
what was taken this time. Still some major delays here in Burnaby where the entire intersection of Canada Way and Kensington is blocked off due to a much earlier accident this afternoon. Today's Lotto 649 gold ball jackpot is $28 million plus a classic $5 million jackpot. Two jackpots on every draw. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash in Burnaby. A BC doctor is getting ready for yet another trip to the front lines of the Russia-Ukraine war. Her story is both harrowing and inspiring, but it comes with a warning that some of the images are disturbing. As Krista Dow shows us, she's asking for help to take desperately needed medical equipment back with her. The Ukrainian port of Odessa lit up for a second day in a row. Ukraine officials say Russia launched nighttime air attacks targeting grain terminals and port infrastructure. The drone and missile strikes retaliation after Russia pledged revenge for an attack on the Kerch Bridge, a key artery linking Russia to annex Crimea. Twelve people were wounded. The constant attacks on human life the reason why Cranbrook doctor Tracy Parnell continually risks her life traveling to the war-torn country. So in Bakhmut itself, within 24 hours, we were seeing between 100 and 220 patients every 24 hours. Parnell's trade in emergency medicine and disaster management has returned home to share her experience. The thing that hasn't changed is the number of dead and dying and the horrific ones. And... Um, that doesn't get any easier. This video from Parnell on a previous trip capturing the reality of the war. She and her team provide emergency care to the wounded in Ukraine. Many of the injuries too graphic to show, but the ones we can show provide insight into the crisis on the front lines. The team is raising money to train other doctors and first responders in advanced trauma care. The training is life-saving, but costly. These people are thirsty, hungry for, for any training they can get. And this offers them a very high level and an adaptable level. A GoFundMe has been launched to help pay for that training, plus much-needed supplies. This equipment, we have to make sure it's meeting their needs. And the only way to do that is to walk a mile or miles in their footsteps. Parnell plans to leave in two weeks for her seventh trip back to the war zone. Daring once again to venture where many refuse to go. Krista Dow, Global News. The province's unregulated drug supply took the lives of 184 British Columbians last month. That's just over six deaths each day. The BC Coroner Service says in the first six months of this year, 1,200 deaths are attributed to the toxic drug crisis. Illicit fentanyl continues to be the main driving force, with the drug being present in 90% of testing in June. Unregulated drug toxicity is the leading cause of death in BC for people aged 10 to 59. It accounts for more deaths than homicides, suicides, accidents, and natural disasters combined. Coming up, remembering one of BC's most colorful characters. He was a notorious partier. The swashbuckling mayor of Nanaimo, who will never be forgotten later. And coming up in sports, a big game ahead for the Whitecaps, taking on the best team in North America.
A Vancouver snowboard shop that lost a quarter million dollars in inventory in a break in January has been hit by thieves again. This time the thief smashed his way through the front window of the boardroom clearance center on 4th Avenue in the early morning. Surveillance video shows a man loading up a garbage bin with shoes from the store. 15 pairs were taken in all. The boardroom's manager says the repeated thefts are making it increasingly difficult to keep the doors open. It's really heartbreaking. You know, for us, it's $1,000 in shoes, but the window itself is $1,000 plus, and we're going to have to eat those costs and not make an insurance claim because otherwise our rates skyrocket. With a, a deductible that's in the thousands, these type of break-ins just really affect small businesses like ours. The shop is asking people to call them or Vancouver police if they are offered a deal that's too good to be true on some brand new Nikes or Vans shoes. All right, let's bring in meteorologist Yvonne Shell now with a look at our weather forecast. Uh, more heat in the next few days, Yvonne. Yeah, the heat continues, the drought as well. We're also still seeing a few areas that are tracking the smoke. I'll have your smoke forecast coming up in just a moment. Uh, but the heat, the big weather story for us, a great place to cool down is by the water. Beautiful shot from the Wall Centre Hotel camera. We're currently sitting at 24 degrees. We've had a few unofficial temperature records fall through the day today. Qualicum Beach getting up to 29.9, the old record set back in in 2015 and Powell River topping out at 29.6. A few other spots across the province with Lytton being the hot spot getting up to 38 degrees. Thompson Okanagan today soaring into the low 30s and areas across the central interior of Prince George topping out at 26. Smoky skies bulletin so now all areas that are in grey still seeing the smoke potentially over the next 24 and a few spots over the next 48 hours. Fort Nelson across the central half of the province included within that so those with respiratory issues will want to try and limit the amount of time spent outdoors. Also, a heat warning is in effect. This includes the Fraser Canyon, Lytton, and all areas across the Okanagan Valley. The temperature is soaring between 35 and 38 degrees. And overnight lows, there won't be much of a reprieve, just down to 18. The hottest days will be Thursday, Friday. And we can see that from the temperature trends. So for the interior, the Okanagan Valley, for example, very hot for Thursday, Friday. A bit of a reprieve comes on the way for Tuesday onwards. And areas along the south coast, away from the water, still in Another hot one for tomorrow. Monday onwards, we'll be back into the low 20s. Now, the northern half of the province bumps up to 18. We still have that widespread smoke. A few areas could see the potential for some isolated thunderstorms. Lightning will be a big concern. Across the island and the lower mainland, another hot one. Be prepared. Into the weekend so far, it's late day Sunday. By the evening hours, an increase in cloud cover and 21 degrees for our Monday. Beautiful, beautiful shot captured for tonight's weather window. Qualicum Beach, rather, and this was taken by Jillian. Guys? Is there anything better in the heat of summer. That looks great. Thanks, mm -hmm. Yvonne. Refreshing. All right, uh, Squire here now with a look ahead to sports. Squire? Well, we're almost uh, at the start of the Women's World Cup of Soccer, so we'll talk about it. Canada's first game is actually tomorrow night, our time, Friday in Australia. We'll discuss uh, one of their key players who looks like she might be able to play that first game against Nigeria. Sounds good. Thanks, Squire. Also ahead. Well, everybody knew a friend. The infamous Frank Ney, the notorious mayor who put Nanaimo on the map.
Squires here, as you mentioned last night, there's no parade for the League's Cup, which we'll get to a little bit later, but there would be in Women's World Cup of Soccer. Oh, if we won the Women's World Cup of Soccer, yes. There would be much rejoicing, just like there was when uh, our own Julia Grosso scored the winning goal at the Olympics uh, for Canada. Uh, now, the Women's World Cup of Soccer will start tomorrow, and Canada will be playing its first game against Nigeria. That will start at 7.30 tomorrow night. Now, it's Friday in Australian time. Um, Canada is ranked six going into this FIFA World Rankings, but we are, of course, the defending Olympic champions, and uh, they're calling this group that Canada is in the group of death, but I still like Canada's chances. If they're in the top two, they move on to the knockout stage. So here's how it's going to work. Um, Nigeria's first up. That's tomorrow night, 7.30 hour time. Then they'll take on Ireland on July 26th. And then they're taking on one of the hosts. There are two host countries, Australia and New Zealand. So they'll face Australia July 31st, and that will start at uh, 3 a.m. our time. And Canada may have dodged a problem because one of its best players, midfielder, Jesse Fleming looks healthier than she did earlier this week. She had hurt her calf muscle. It was taped up and she was limited in practice. No tape today, so that means she should be ready to go, we would hope, against Nigeria. Canada's never had the same kind of success at the World Cup compared to the Olympics. Canada's best finish at a World Cup was actually fourth way back in 2003. The Vancouver Whitecaps, like most Major League Soccer teams, really don't need another in-season tournament since the rosters really aren't that deep in MLS to handle extra games. They're not like big-time European teams that have great subs who can take the burden off regular starters for these other tournaments. The Whitecaps themselves have already been through the Champions League and the Canadian Championship, and now they have the League's Cup, which involves every MLS team and every team from the Mexican League. And for the Whitecaps, it'll start Friday at home against Lyon of Mexico. Playing the best team in North America. We're playing the CONCACAF Champions League uh, winner. Son los campeones 2023 de CONCACAF Liga de Campeones. The opening round of the inaugural League's Cup will be Cup winner versus Cup winner. Last month, Club Leon of the Mexican League captured the CONCACAF Club Championship, while a few weeks prior, the Whitecaps won their consecutive Canadian Championship. That right there is a decent storyline entering a mid-season tournament between Major League Soccer and Liga Mekis 47 clubs. Uh, it's going to be a high quality game, it's going to be an exciting game and uh, you know this competition, this cup uh, are always like this when they start saying why do we play this cup and then if we qualify everyone's going to get excited because uh, silverware are very important and, uh, and uh, that's the reason why we play. And Ryan Gold tucks it neatly in the corner and Vancouver the Whitecaps are coming off back-to-back -back MLS victories, which has moved them from the ninth and final playoff spot up to seventh. But playing the League's Cup has forced a month-long MLS shutdown. The Whitecaps won't resume their MLS schedule until August the 20th, where it'll then be a sprint to hopefully a playoff finish with their final dozen regular season games at their feet. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a little bit difficult because it's a new tournament. You don't really know what to expect. and. Uh, hopefully, you know, you're, you're all so focused on climbing the table in MLS, getting a home playoff game, and now you have to kind of step away from that mindset for something else. So it's a, it, it might be a little bit difficult, but hopefully we, we come out, put our best foot forward, and try and win another trophy. Of course, we are in the middle of the season. I think that is a good thing that uh, uh, we can, let's say, work on our game model, but not having uh, pushing, pushing, pushing and high-volume training now because uh, we need fresh leg uh, 
uh, in a month when we'll uh, when we'll be in the in the final rush for the playoffs. The Seattle Kraken have announced that they've given head coach Dave Haxall a two-year extension, and it's deserved. He led Seattle to a 40-point improvement this past season. He also beat the defending Avalanche in the first round of the playoffs. He was a finalist for NHL Coach of the Year this past season. When you think about it, the 1990s were a big decade for the city of Seattle. Those were the days when Seattle was the center of the grunge music scene that was sweeping the world. Microsoft was growing. Amazon was founded there. And the uh, Seahawks wore a lot more blue and silver. And today the Hawks announced they're going to use those 90s colors and helmet in a game against uh, Cleveland on October 29th. Just to remind you, here's what they look like. And here's how the Seahawks players reacted when they saw them. Notice how they, how they uh, fit in the boombox there just to get yeah. the 90s. <laughs> is that really like Steve Largent? Steve Largent, Jim Zorn, those guys? Or is that, yeah, they although, well, little? they go further back. Further and back, the yeah. Uniforms were a bit different. Mm -hmm. I think this is more Cortez Kennedy. Yeah. That's they look right. good. Yeah, they, they look good. I like the ones they have now. I like yeah. the action green, the yeah, crazy like the fluorescence green ones, but those are nice too. It's a good throwback. Thanks, Square. Up next, BC politics is never boring. We will meet the pirate mayor of Nanaimo who helped build that reputation. Hard matey. So if you said it earlier, politics is never boring in BC, nope. but it, the, there have been points in BC history where it seemed downright <laughs> crazy. <laughs> well... I mean, when you think of Nanaimo, if you were to say the word Nanaimo around the world, probably people would say Nanaimo Bar first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they might say after Nanaimo Bar, Frank Nay. And here's why. For over 20 years, Nanaimo voters took Nay for an answer. Frank Nay was the mayor from 1968 to 1984, and then again from 86 to 90. But Frank Nay is unlike any politician you have ever seen or heard about. All you have to do is see his statue, where he's dressed as a friendly pirate, the image he's best known for. It's a perfectly appropriate recognition of his significance in the history of the community yeah. and the way he promoted it. And he was a promoter. I mean, he was the ultimate promoter. Well, he was actually on a very famous American game show dressed as the pirate. I think it was To Tell the Truth or one of those things. And uh, he was renowned around the world with that, that image. Frank's pirate persona would always be part of the Nanaimo to Vancouver bathtub race. Greetings from the city of Nanaimo, Jewel of the West, Sun Porcha, Canada, and the bathtub capital of the world. But Frank's legacy doesn't end at the tip of his sword. There are the oddly named streets around Nanaimo, which he had a lot to do with. I, th I think it was just part of the fun spirit that he thought Nanaimo should have. Another one of his expressions was people prefer corn to culture. So, you know, uh, maybe the road names were part of that. And Frank Ney's stamp upon Nanaimo also comes about because he wore more than one hat. The world of conflicts that was not even questioned back when he was the MLA, the mayor, and running Nanaimo Realty. 
Um, nowadays, I mean, golly, no one would even think of doing that, but they, they were different times. And despite some citizens never being happy with him, Frank always seemed happy himself. That's one of the things that amazed me about him. In politics, there's so much negativity and criticism, but he was always promoting Nanaimo positively and had a smile on his face for practically everyone. He, he was a man of many, many faces. <laughs> was he good for the town? Very, very good. Because? Because he cared about the city and he did care about the people. And he really cared about his pirate costume. I'm trying to imagine other mayors in BC dressed as pirates. Maybe well, they should do that at the next UBCM meeting. Have a pirate night. That would he would apparently funny. wear it at other places. He, he loved to go to events and stuff, and, and mayors that followed Frank Ney were asked, are you going to dress as a pirate too? But no, you can't follow that. Amazing True. part of BC history, no doubt about it. Uh, okay, we'll check in one last time with Yvonne for a look at that forecast. Another hot one tomorrow. Temperatures will be soaring away from the water. 30 factor in the Humidex. It's going to feel like 33. Hot so far leading in towards the weekend, but a slight reprieve with a bit more cloud cover rolling in for Sunday night. So far dry and into early next week. We'll see temperatures drop into the low 20s. That'll feel nice. Okay, thanks very much, Yvonne. Thanks everyone for watching. Have a great night. Night all.